0: Hello, everybody. This is Jeremy again. Hopefully, you listened to part one of Answering Mormon Objections, and you were able to hear the four general objections that all Latter-day Saints have to biblical Christianity. Well, in today's part of this two-part lecture I gave at a church back in November, um, you will hear the responses that we should be able to give from a biblical worldview, answering those objections. Hope this helps you as you seek to interact with Mormon missionaries who may knock on your door or even family or friends that you have that are Latter-day Saints. Leave us a rating, leave us a review, reach out to us on social media, send us an email, show at dotheology.com. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for listening and have a great day. All right. Well, um, this is Sunday school, so I want to have some interaction today. And I want to have interaction from the scriptures, so please grab your Bibles. Hopefully you have those with you. And if not, it does look like we have some Bibles in the pews there. So grab one of those. And um, I want to interact, but I have a lot of information and not a lot of time. So I don't know how much we'll get to to interact this morning, but I'll try to go fast. And you can listen to it again if you need to later. Uh, But last night, we talked through these things. Uh, Four elements that all Latter-day Saints believe, that the Book of Mormon is true, that you as a Christian come from a long line of broken churches and faulty theology, that we're all going to heaven, and that personal revelation and feeling overrides all else. So today I want to walk back through these four things, starting at the bottom, and I want us to address each one from a biblical perspective and answer the question, Uh, How do I talk to a Latter-day Saint or anyone else who believes in this? And we're going to start with number four there, that personal revelation and feeling overrides uh, all else. The way that we address this is by addressing the theology of human depravity. And of course, this is the first step in gospel proclamation also. Uh, Perhaps you've learned little ways to share the gospel with people, to witness to people, like the bad news, good news approach. Uh, you got to have bad news before you can have good news, right? You have to know about the sinfulness of man before you understand the need of a Savior. And that's what I'm talking about here. We must uh, demonstrate that man is sinful, and we must do so from the Scriptures. It's very important for you as a Christian to demonstrate your reliance on the scriptures as you engage in a gospel conversation with somebody. We cannot uh, play their game of being our own authority. I talked about that last night. If we say personal feeling overrides everything else, we make ourselves the authority. Well, we don't want to demonstrate to a a non-believer non-believer that we are our own authorities. We want to demonstrate reliance on the scriptures. And we need to teach that our feelings and our perceptions are ultimately unreliable because of sin. And what God will do as we get into this conversation with a non-believer is that He will convict them by means of using you and His Word, His people and His Word. So we want to think of passages that in their appropriate context demonstrate that man is sinful. And a key text is Psalm 51 five where David wrote his, his great psalm of repentance, and he made, made this amazing statement, I was brought forth in iniquity, or sin, or rebellion. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin, my mother conceived me. So our sin and our uh, rebellion against God is as old as our conception. Pretty old. <laughs> goes right back to the very beginning, doesn't it? And as we're talking about feelings and we're talking about uh, personal uh, thoughts that we believe are directly from God, we need to remind uh, people that their thoughts and feelings are unreliable, as it states in Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart of man is desperately sick. God teaches us from His Word that we are reliant on as His creatures. He teaches us that our hearts, our feelings, our emotions are clouded by sin. And I want you to turn to Romans 3 with me, and you can see this very clearly in Romans chapter 3. Uh, Paul is making an argument in the book of Romans, as you well know. You've been hearing sermons from this book. And in the first three chapters of Romans, he is making sure his readers know that all people are under sin. There is not one person who is free from the curse of sin, but all of God's creatures are under bondage of sin. And I want us to uh, particularly look at verses 10 through 20. And perhaps I could get a volunteer to read 10 through 20. Verses uh, 10 through 18 are pretty short, so it sounds like a lot, but it's really not too much. Does someone want to read Romans 3, 10 through 20 for, for us this morning?
1: This is Ken here jumping in. You just heard Jeremy ask someone from the audience to read a passage of Scripture, but they did not have an audience microphone, so I'm going to provide a voiceover. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We need to remember
0: that all works-based religions, including Mormonism, they live in this illusion that somehow they are able to keep the law. But we know from Scripture what God has revealed to us, that no one can keep the law. No one is able to do so. We are unable to perfectly obey all of God's commands. And what was just read there, particularly verse 20 is so important, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We need to, as we, as we engage with the Latter-day Saint or whoever we, we may be talking to, we need to address this issue that our feelings and our personal opinions that we think might come from God, all of those things are clouded by sin because we are sinners. We are sinners. We are not born pure. We are not... Uh, born in a state where we can uh, be our own authorities, be our own arbiters of truth. We are absolutely, totally, utterly reliant on God's word. That's where we start, and that's where we finish, is with the revelation that God has given us. And um, let's see, I think we might be using the old PowerPoint instead of the new one. I gave a, a new one this morning with some additional slides. Maybe I should dance while we pull up the other one or something uh, to entertain you. Uh, when it comes to uh, you know addressing these things, we're not just addressing the issue of depravity, but we're also addressing the issue of knowledge. Uh, this is called epistemology in the theological world or the philosophical world. It's how do we know what we know? And you can start to get in some weird places as you think about that. Uh, it can keep you up at night if you think too hard about how you know what you know and how do you know what truth is. And as Christians, again, I I can't stress this enough, we are dependent on God to know what is true. We are absolutely dependent, as his creatures, we are dependent on God to know what is true. And so God's stated revelation, his word, the Holy Bible, is irrefutable. And as Christians, we should be unapologetic as we stand on his word. Sometimes we can get in these conversations with people and we are almost embarrassed of our worldview, our worldview that starts with the Bible and ends with the Bible. Because it doesn't start with us, does it? It doesn't start with our own opinions, does it? It shouldn't. But that's what the world wants you to do. The world wants you to share your own thoughts as though you are some independent creature. But Christians understand we are dependent creatures. We are utterly dependent on our Creator for understanding and for wisdom. And we can't account for reason or logic without the infinite personal God. We need God to be able to reason. And what was the original sin in the garden? It was wanting to be free from God, autonomy, independence from God. Let's not go back to the garden when we have these conversations because they're going to want to have that type of conversation of, well, let's pretend like, you know, you don't have the Bible. You know, how do you feel about this? Let's not do that. We are dependent on God. He's given us his word. And we unapologetically use his word as we reason with them. And if someone wants to fuss about your insistence on using scripture alone, and that'll happen, where they'll say, look, you keep using the Bible, but I don't believe the Bible's true. So if someone wants to fuss about that, if it's a religious person, like a Mormon, then you can say, well, what do you think about Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims and their view of Jesus? Like, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe Jesus is Michael the archangel. What do you believe about that? Or, or Muslims believe he wasn't really the savior of the world, he was just a good teacher. If you were in a, a deep theological conversation with one of those people, how would you correct them? Well, at that point, they're pretty quick to abandon their feelings because they'll say, well, we want to show them what the Bible says about Jesus. Well, right, yes, you would, because that is the objective truth. You can't just say, well, I feel that Jesus was... An angel, I feel that Jesus was this, I feel that Jesus was that. What are feelings anyway? When you pit feelings against one another, who's to say what's right or what's wrong? But if we are going to look at the objective truth of God, we are going to open our Bibles and we are going to submit to what God has said. And a lot of religious people, when they want to talk about feelings, if you ask them a question like this, they'll quickly abandon their feelings and say, you know, we, sh- we should look at what the Bible has to say, or we should look at what God has said. And so it's a good direction to go when you're in that conversation, I also want you to remember that Scripture teaches us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and that God grants people repentance leading to knowledge. So when we're having these conversations uh, with people, we need to recognize that we're dependent on God for our knowledge, but we're also dependent on God for him to open their eyes. God is the one who does that work. Uh, You, it's not on you to be the most persuasive person (laughs) who can save a soul. Okay, God uses you, and you should study and be diligent as you seek to engage in these conversations, but God will use his word through you to open someone's eyes, and that person will first fear him and then have knowledge. You don't get the knowledge first leading to a fear of the Lord. You start with fear of the Lord. That's Proverbs 1, verse 7. It's all throughout Proverbs. A person needs to begin from a position of fearing God to then acquire knowledge. We are the vessels that God uses to call on others to repent of their autonomy, their desire to be free from God. Isn't it amazing that God would use people like us to do such a work? And that's what He does. All right, so let's keep going back up the list. The the third issue. We're all going to heaven. How can we address this from a biblical worldview in a conversation with a Latter-day Saint or another religious person who denies uh, that many people will be going to hell? Well, that's exactly where we need to go, the truth about hell from Scripture. One of the very first verses I memorized as a Christian, and this might tell you a little bit of something about my personality, for better or worse, was Matthew 10.28, where Jesus says, Don't fear man, but fear God he was able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus taught about hell a lot. And for several or for many people in the world that's uncomfortable that Jesus would teach about such a place. But notice what Jesus is saying here about hell. He's teaching that it's a place where God destroys soul and body. And he's also teaching it to his disciples as though it was an actual possibility for people to go there. Remember, the Latter-day Saints believe in three kingdoms of heaven. We're all going to go to one of these three kingdoms of heaven, except for a very, very small fraction of people who go to outer darkness, and that's really just a place where you're sitting alone in a dark room and you're miserable for all eternity. But Jesus taught talked about hell, and he taught about hell in a very specific way, that this is a place where God destroys soul and body. Luke 16 is another important place to go. Let's turn there together. Luke chapter 16, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Hopefully you remember this story, where Jesus illustrates what happens to people after they die. And can someone in the room tell me uh, who Lazarus was and who the rich man was? Test your Your Bible knowledge here with a little quiz this morning. Who was Lazarus? Was he rich? We'll start with some basic things. No, he wasn't. Okay, so he's being contrasted with the rich man. Who was Lazarus? How does Jesus present him in the story? Yeah, beggar, poor guy. Yeah, right. And the rich man, what do we know about him? He had money, right? what else Lived a life of luxury it says in verse 19 of Luke 16 he was clothed in purple and fine linen linen and he feasted sumptuously it says in the ESV feasted sumptuously every day and then when they died where did the uh, where did Lazarus go when he died Well, what's the specific term that's used here in this passage? Yeah, Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, your translation might say. And where did the rich man go when he died? Okay, good. He went to Hades, a place of torment. And verse 24 He's calling out, saying, "Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." So there's—it's a place with flames. It's a place with fire. You have this in your head when you imagine hell or Hades, right? It's a place of fire. Well, that's what Jesus taught—that it's a place of flame and a place of anguish. And I want you to see. What Jesus says, because the rich man, of course, requests that uh, he's able to go back or that there's a messenger that can go back and tell his brothers and warn his brothers. But look what Abraham says in verse 29. Abraham responds and says, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. That's what they need. They need more evidence. They need a sign. And look what he says in verse 31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. See the importance of Scripture in all these conversations? Conversations about hell, conversations about knowledge, conversations about feelings. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. We've got so much more than Moses and the prophets. We have the whole New Testament also, and we need to have a reliance on the Scriptures In these conversations, don't go about these conversations without Scripture. You are utterly reliant on Scripture. And I want you to see uh, one more passage on this topic Colossians chapter 2. Turn forward with me to the book of Colossians. So you go past the book of Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Colossians 2, verses 1 through 4. Would someone read that for us? Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, those four verses. Who can read that for us?
1: For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments.
0: All right, so verse 4, Paul is giving the reason for the verses before. He's saying in verse 4, I'm saying these things to you so that no one will deceive you or that no one will delude you with their plausible arguments. When you're in a conversation with the Latter-day Saint, when you're in a conversation with whoever it may be who's not a believer— You are to not be deluded or deceived by that person. And how are you able to stay on track? How are you able to to think correctly about these things? Verses 2 and 3 it says that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach the riches of full assurance of understanding, the knowledge of God's mystery. And what is the knowledge of God's mystery at the end of verse 2? What does it say? Christ. And in verse 3, in Christ are hidden some of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. No, all, all. So when it comes to the topic of hell, for instance, or whatever whatever else it may be, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We do not forsake our Savior's teaching in these conversations or his word in these conversations. And when Jesus speaks of hell, he teaches specific things about it. So as you're talking to a Latter-day Saint, someone who believes that we're all going to heaven, whoever it may be, you say, well, that's not what Jesus said. Let me show you what Jesus said. And that's the means that God will use to reach a person's heart. He's not going to use your opinions that you've developed apart from the word of God to reach someone's heart. God has given us his word, the sword of the spirit, because that is what we take to battle. It's able to address every concern for life and for godliness. And the truth about hell is that this is a place where many go. Remember all the things Jesus taught about this, that uh, there's a narrow way and a broad way, and there are many who are being led to destruction Jesus was clear on this, and it's important that we are just as clear as Jesus was. Second thing I taught last night that they all believe is that you, as a Christian, come from a long line of broken churches and faulty theology. Now, uh, these can be really interesting conversations that lead to a lot of rabbit-chasing, I'm sure you've been in religious banter before where something pops up and you start chasing that rabbit uh, and you go 100 yards in the wrong direction and you can't remember how you even got on that trail in the first place. Uh, That can happen a lot on this topic. So I want to encourage you to be concise and clear if you ever are talking to someone about church history. And when someone says, look, well, uh, when I look at the Protestant church history, it's a really messed up thing. You're, You're all arguing and splitting and everything else. Well, where do we go in Scripture uh, to learn about church history? (laughs) Uh, At this time, it was church future when Jesus declared, I will build my church. And Jesus' promise was not conditional. He didn't say, I will build my church if these people can hold it together. That's not what he said. He said, I will build my church. It's his response to Peter. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Matthew 16, 18. That is an unconditional promise from Jesus, the Lord of the universe, saying, He will build His church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. It's a promise. There's nothing that humans can do. There's nothing that demons can do to throw off Jesus's will to build his church. The church depends on Jesus alone. We don't depend on any type of human coalition to hold it together for Jesus. Can you imagine how quickly the church would have fallen apart if that was the case? You study church history. I hope you've, you've studied it some. You at least know some basic facts about church history. But even if you don't, You know yourself, you know your family, you know the people you go to church with. If this was all dependent on us, we would mess it up real fast, wouldn't we? But God's supernatural grace, his supernatural kindness, his patience and mercy with each and every one of us, he knits us together, he holds us together. And he's the one who builds his church despite us. He builds his church despite the ways that we can mess it up. And he Builds his church because it is his church. Notice that the verse says, Jesus speaking, I will build my church. It's his. It belongs to him alone. And he is going to build it. He has built it for 2,000 years, and he's going to continue to do so until he returns. Jesus is able to make such a promise because he is the one true God. And this is obviously a major point of disagreement with the Latter-day Saints and with other wayward movements. Uh, There are two things cults do, uh, typically. Wayward movements will first say that Jesus isn't the one true God of the universe. They will demote him to a lesser position. He will be some type of junior God or an angel or something like that. And the second thing that they do is question God's word. And that's what the Mormon church does as well. The Mormon church demotes Jesus. He's not the one true God. And they question his word. When it comes to defending Jesus' deity as the one true God, there are three chapter ones that you need to remember in the New Testament. What books do you need to know? Blank chapter one, blank chapter one, and blank chapter one. Do you know the books? John. John 1.1, that was on our table last night at the, uh, the banquet. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God in the word. And then you drop down to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word is Jesus Christ himself in the beginning. In the beginning. Sounds like Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, before anything was, Jesus was. And he was with God and he was God. There's Trinitarian theology right from the first verse of John. So John chapter 1 is important. What other two books do you need to know? Chapter 1's, when it comes to the deity of Jesus Christ. John 1, Colossians 1. So if you didn't know that, write it down. You need to know these. Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. Hopefully you're still in Colossians. You can just look right over at uh, chapter 1 with me. Colossians chapter 1. We can start at verse 15. It says, He, in reference to Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He might be preeminent, verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What a verse, verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is God. There is no other being that Jesus could be based on these verses alone. But you take John 1 into consideration, Hebrews 1 into consideration. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the express image of God. He's the exact representation of the nature of God. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That has to be speaking of deity. It can't be any creature, but it must be the one true God. And remember, this is why Jesus can make his promise that he will build his church. Because he is God. If he was a creature like us, if he really is just our spirit brother, he could never make an unconditional promise that he will build his church. But if he is who he said he was... Uh, In there are many places where Jesus claimed deity. John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am, he said to the Jews. In John 10, 30, I and the father are one. In his prayer in John 17, he prayed to the father and said, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. Jesus over and over again, testifying to being the one true God of the universe. If he is God, if he is who he said he was, he can say, I will build my church and nothing will stand against it. And it's true and it's true. So we defend from the Word of God that Jesus is God. Now, regarding Scripture, because it's not just the deity of Jesus, it's also Scripture that they question. Regarding Scripture, we have the promises of inspiration, inerrancy, and sufficiency, but we don't have the promise of perfect copying. And this is where a lot of people can falter, a lot of people can get kind of turned around and switched up on these things, because what uh, people will point to is say, they'll say, look, the Bible's been translated so many times, how can you trust it? Maybe you've heard that argument before. Uh, the, the Bible's just been translated so many times. And really what they mean to say is copied. They don't mean to say translated, uh, but copied. Because over and over again, in the first several centuries uh, after Jesus's ascension, the uh, manuscripts of the New Testament were taken and they were copied down by human beings like you and me, so they could have their own copies of the Word. And they would send off the copy to the next group of people, and they would make copies, and so on and so forth. And what we see as we look back at all these copies that we've discovered through archaeology, uh, as we go back and we look, uh, we see that there are differences, there are discrepancies between one copy and another. But let me assure you that 99.99% of these discrepancies do not affect the message of the word. These discrepancies can be as little as a different punctuation mark or saying Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ. These are discrepancies from one copy to another. They're called variations in the world of textual criticism, but they really have no impact on the message of the word because God has promised us his word and he's promised that it'll be sufficient. And he has been faithful to do that throughout history. No other book is more well-attested to than the Word of God. We don't have nearly as many copies of any work of antiquity. And because we have so many copies, we can get them all together and we can look at the New Testament and say, okay, 95% of the copies say this, and this batch from this region of the earth says this, well, they probably got off on a wrong track from a copyist, and we're going to trust the bulk of these copies over here. And it's a an interesting study, and you should all have some familiarity with how you got your Bible. It's a very important thing to know. Uh, But at the bottom, the bottom line at the end of the day is that we can trust it. God has been faithful to preserve His Word. He never promised perfect copying, but He promised that we would have His Word, and He promised that it would be sufficient. And it's a it's a fascinating study to do. And if you'd let me stay a few more weeks, we'd talk about it. But uh, we don't have that kind of time. Uh, today. Now, remember with scripture and with the church, the Latter-day Saint presupposes, we talked about this last night, they presuppose that there should be clean organization and uniformity. There should be clean organization and uniformity because they don't have copies of the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon was written by Joseph Smith and Joseph Smith alone. And he gave it to the church and said, this is your book. And they said, okay, that's the way it should be. There should just be one guy who writes it all down and hands it to us. That's what they presuppose the process should be. It should be clean like that. Well, God didn't promise us that type of process. And so we need to challenge their presupposition in that way because God never said that's the way that it works. Regarding Scripture, we need to hold to these promises of inspiration that the Bible uh, is an inspired book. It's a divine book. The Holy Spirit is the capital A author of the book. It's inspired. It's inerrant. There are no errors in the Bible. There's no place where the Bible's off a little bit on this or that. It's true about everything it says. It's right about everything it says. And it's sufficient. We don't need any supplement to the Bible. And you, as a Christian, need to believe that. There are so many places today, and this, this is getting off of talking with Mormons, this is generally, there are so many places today where you can start to believe you need other things to, to, to live this life. That you need the, the latest uh, you know, self help methods that are out there, or that you need um, this secular form of counseling to supplement the Bible, or you need this or that. You don't need anything else other than the Word of God because God's promise is that He has equipped you with all you need for life and godliness in every generation. What transcends every generation? The Word of God. It is sufficient for life and for godliness. So regarding scripture, we hold to these things. And regarding the church, we have that promise that Jesus will build his church. We don't have a promise of total uniformity around the world. When a Mormon or whoever it may be comes up with this type of rebuttal against the way that you go about church, that how can you have fellowship with this other church? You disagree on this, or how can you say that they're Christians? You disagree on baptism and blah, 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 blah. We don't have the promise of uniformity in God's church that we would all dress the same, be gifted the same, act the same, even believe all the same doctrine down to the final T. We have the promise of unity, not uniformity. And that unity comes from his word and the gospel. That's where our unity is found, not in anything external. So we hold on to the promises that we have in scripture and we challenge those who want to say that there are other promises that actually aren't there. Um... It's good for you to know about church history and to be able to explain Christian unity and diversity. And for a little shameless plug, I'm going to throw these things up there. Uh, if you go to our, our SoundCloud page, that's what we use to store all of our church audio, soundcloud.com slash OHBCPayson SETS, you will see all of our playlists on there. We did a 16-week study of church history a few years ago, Uh, That was very helpful for me and for the church as we looked at these issues. We started uh, from the New Testament and went all the way through today. We ended with some contemporary theology, looking at some modern movements. Uh, You can find that at that website. I'm also a podcaster with a friend of mine from Bible College. Our uh, podcast is called Do Theology. And in that podcast, it's all about Christian unity and diversity and how we work through those issues we need to be able to articulate some fundamental aspects of unity and diversity uh, to have these conversations. And of course, my uh, website is jeremyhoward.net. Couldn't get the .com because some guy owns that uh, for personal use and he is unwilling to sell it to me. So uh, it is .net, all right? A few, uh, a few more slides and then we'll have about 90 seconds for Q&A, I think. Uh, the last thing to address is we're going back up the list from a biblical worldview is their belief that the Book of Mormon is true. Now, if you've gone through each of these other things, if you've had conversations about the primacy of the Word of God and why it's important that we rely on the Word of God, and you've talked to them about what the gospel is, if you've talked to them about the reality of heaven and hell, the reality of Jesus being God and Jesus building His church, if you've had these discussions and the person is actually following along And the person is kind of, you know, giving in and saying, yeah, okay, I I see it. I agree. I believe you. I'm seeing that. Uh, Maybe I should change my views. What an amazing opportunity that is, by the way. That happens. But if you're going along, that person, the the Mormon, the Latter-day Saint, is eventually going to have to give up this belief, number one, that the Book of Mormon is true. And this is probably going to be the hardest one because this has to do with Joseph Smith directly. It's reckoning with Joseph Smith, going from calling him a true prophet to a false prophet. And that is incredibly difficult. The idea of rejecting Joseph Smith as a prophet of God for many Latter day Saints is as difficult as rejecting a son. Especially if a person was born into that religion, if that person's entire life he or she is, has recognized Joseph Smith as a prophet of God. Getting to this point and saying, yeah, I don't want anything to do with him anymore is about the same as looking at your own child and saying, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. That is how deep their allegiance is to Joseph Smith. One of the most uh, amazing examples of this, real life examples in my life was our first trip to Utah. Melissa and I were with a church group out there in 2008. And we were being given the Temple Square tour where we were walking around the Temple Square grounds in Salt Lake City. And they always show movies in one of the buildings. Uh, Usually they're 30 to 40 minute movies. They cycle through all day. And and the guy who was giving us the tour instructed us to go in there. And we uh, were watching the Joseph Smith biography movie, The Life of Joseph Smith, from Palmyra, New York, when he had the first vision all the way until his death. And we were in that room with a bunch of Latter-day Saints. Uh, A lot of Mormons like to go to Temple Square when they're in Salt Lake City, if they don't live in the area. And they were there watching the movie with us. Uh, There were probably close to 100 people in the room. And when Joseph Smith was killed in the movie, that's how he died. He was killed in Carthage, Illinois. When he was killed, the people in the room began to weep in the same way that Christians would weep, watching something like The Passion of the Christ. To them... Seeing their prophet and their eyes martyred was just a really deeply emotional thing. All the Christians had dry eyes watching that, thinking, yeah, that's what happened. Uh, You know, it's just a fact of reality. But for them, he wasn't just any other guy. He was the one through whom Heavenly Father restored the gospel on the face of the earth. So if they're going to concede on some points with you, And understand from Scripture that this is what God has said. When they get to this place, you need to know it's a very deeply held belief. It's the biggest hurdle. And oftentimes it's the last hurdle, but it's often the biggest hurdle. Losing a testimony of Joseph and the Book of Mormon is a process that usually takes years. And as you're talking to somebody, anybody coming from one religion and going to another, as you're talking to a person, you need to realize this is a process and you need to try to figure out where they are in that process. Um, A lot of times you'll be at the very beginning of that, and they might not move much farther than where they are that day. But sometimes God will, in his sovereign grace, he will place you in a position where you can lead someone like that to the Lord, and you can ask that person, are you ready? Are you ready? Mormons must be confronted with biblical truth and the reality of Matthew 10. Let's end there, Matthew chapter 10. This is the reality for all Christians, Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 to 39. This is the reality for all who desire to follow Christ, for all who cherish and prize Jesus more than anything else in the world. This is the challenge set before us. Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 to 39. Can I get one final volunteer this morning to read those those verses? Matthew 10, 37 to 39. Who's got it?
1: Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it.
0: What a teaching from our Savior. And that's a hard teaching for Latter-day Saints. Melissa and I are from Mid-Missouri where the natural disposition of people, the way that you're born in mid-Missouri is that Jesus is good, other stuff's bad, and, you know, that's just kind of it. And when someone becomes a Christian, most people are happy about that. It's like, well, good, you should be a Christian. Jesus is good. Everything else is bad or everything else is scary. Jesus is good. But in the Mormon community and perhaps in other communities, when someone really, truly makes that decision to follow Jesus, their family's not happy. Their friends aren't happy for them, but relationships are going to be shattered. Lifelong relationships are going to be shattered, and we can't pretend that that's not the case. Jesus told us that's the case, didn't he? He didn't come to bring peace, but he came to bring a sword. That's verse 34 of this very chapter. He didn't come to bring peace, but a sword to divide people based on what you do with him. Do you submit to him as Lord, or do you reject him in your sin? So some final thoughts on these things, and this is just generic for all evangelism. First thing you need to do is be a friend, Uh, particularly if you ever have the opportunity for a a missionary knocking on your door. You need to know that these young men or young women are paired up with someone else that he or she had never met before this mission, (laughs) and they probably don't like each other, the two people. They oftentimes just find each other annoying. And one of the best things you can do if they come to your door is to look to be a friend first. Say, can I buy you pizza? Can, I, can you come in for dinner? Can I bake you some cookies? Whatever it might be. Because those people who are out on this mission, they're used to knocking on doors and getting doors slammed in their face. And though you could do that, that's probably not the best tactic, okay? Uh, be a friend. Invite them in and look to provide some sort of friendship or even mentorship uh, for them. But I want you to do this too. Be a friend that speaks truth often. Being a friend doesn't mean sacrificing truth. In fact, the biblical definition of a friend is someone who does speak truth. Better are the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy, right? And be a friend who wounds in a biblical, loving way with truth. Keep the deity of Christ and the truth of Scripture central. Maybe you'll never have that opportunity with the Latter-day Saint who comes to your door, but you will have gospel conversation opportunities, maybe even today, And as you enter into that conversation, keep those two things central because those two aspects are so key about everything we believe, that Jesus is God and that the Bible is his word. It has authority over us. Pray for new birth and new eyes, that the lost person you're talking to will be born again to a living hope, just as we've experienced. Don't give in and don't give up. Don't give up. Think of how many people have been patient with you in your life. And some of you have Christian testimonies that if people wouldn't have been patient with you, they would have written you off a long time ago. But because someone or a group of people were patient with you and showed you mercy, here you are today as a believer in Jesus Christ. Be patient with people and don't give in. And then finally, involve your local fellowship. God has given you uh, your pastor he's given you elders and deacons in this church and we're aren't, we aren't to go off and do these things alone like we're fighting battles on our own but we are to involve our local fellowship talk to your pastor your pastor's a gift to you hopefully you feel that way <laughs> your pastor's a gift to you and he's the one who's there that god has, has provided for you he's, he's got an office right here you can stop by and say look I was, I'm in these conversations and I don't know what direction to go he's he's pursuing a doctorate in apologetics what better pastor could you have for, for those kinds of questions? Um, and, and for the other people in the church, whether or not they're elders or deacons, they can be praying with you. Involve your local fellowship because Scripture teaches us there are, there's strength in numbers. A threefold cord is not easily broken, right? I've gone over time. Those 90 seconds uh, for Q&A have vanished. Um, this is the end. What, what should I do now, Tim? Okay, all right. Well, I'm sorry I didn't have any time for question and answer, but we'll be around all day so you can find us and ask us some questions if, uh, if you have some.
1: Well, we thank you for listening to that little mini-series on answering Mormon objections. If it raised any thoughts, comments, or questions that you might have about the Mormon faith and you want to ask Jeremy about it, feel free to reach out to us. Our email is show at dotheology.com. You can find us on Twitter, at Do Theology. We're on Facebook as well, facebook.com slash dotheology. We do encourage you to subscribe because we do have Season 3 that is coming your way soon, and we are really, really excited about the content that we have prepared for Season 3, and you will not want to miss it. So subscribe. Until next time, do Theology.